Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Sid Druin. I'm the pastor of Community Groups. If I haven't met you, I met several of you, know several of you. Uh, I'm thankful to be here to open God's Word together uh, with you on Labor Day weekend. And I think there's special points in heaven for being here on Labor Day weekend. So I'll freely distribute those after the service. Um, anyway, uh, it's Labor Day, as I just said, and we're between sermon series. Uh, we just finished a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And uh, we're have this week, and then next week we'll start a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. And so that's kind of where we are, where we've been, where we're going. Uh, and this week I wanted to continue what Mark Upton, who preached last week, sort of emphasized. He did sort of a summary sermon on the Ten Commandments. And he was basically saying that um, if you want to think about, one of the takeaways I got from listening to this sermon was this, about repentance. Like, what is repentance? And I really want to focus on not only just what is it uh, and why it's worth doing, but why is it worth celebrating? And I could say a lot of things about, you know, that uh, thinking about Mark's sermon, trying to tie it in, but as the week has gone on, I've just kind of realized that, like, this is a sermon I needed to hear. So here you go. Welcome to this. So we're all going to hear us together. <laughs> um, so to do this, I want to look at two parables of Jesus. Uh, for those of you who are familiar or unfamiliar with the parables, uh, parables are mostly short stories that Jesus tells. They're stories with familiar characters and settings. Uh, but then uh, something happens that's unfamiliar. The storyline twists or slants in an unfamiliar direction, especially towards the end of the story. And Jesus does this on purpose to disrupt us, to make us to question what we think we know um, and about him, about the world, and about ourselves. And that's all just to say this, that Jesus' parables are actually really fun. And they're fun enough to get us to imagine ourselves inside of them. And then they're also difficult. And they're difficult enough to kind of tease us so that we start thinking about them after we've heard the story over time. So this morning we're gonna look at Luke chapter 15, verses one through 10. There's two stories there traditionally called the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Uh, these titles were not in the original scripture and they are an adventure and misunderstanding. Like most parable titles, uh, the actual main character, the, the thing you should be paying attention to is not the, sh the coin or the sheep so much as the shepherd and the woman and the finding that's going on there. And we'll get more into that as we go. Uh, but before we do, let's turn to Luke 15 verses one through 10 and let's look at these parables together. They, you can read along with me uh, on the screen behind me or your bulletin. Uh, or if you have a paper Bible, you can flip there, or a phone, you're welcome to swipe and get there. Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? 
And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, these are the words of God, and they're more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they're sweeter than honey, even honey straight from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, um, thank you for your words to us this morning. Uh, Thanks for bringing us here. Thanks for waking us up. And Lord, I do pray uh, that we would see you, Jesus, that we'd see you high and lifted up, that you'd be more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. Would you use your word again? Would you once again remind us of the old, old story that is new every time we hear it? I pray uh, for all of us to be captured by a vision of who you are, Jesus, and that it wouldn't let us go. And it would, it would uh, delight um, delight us into our cars and out the parking lot and into our weeks. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let me begin with a, a confession of sorts. Uh, maybe it's a nerdy confession. I'm a bit obsessed with uh, this author named Walker Percy. Uh, just to give you some sense of it, um, I read a 500-page biography of a guy who writes for a living in a room. That's kind of how it's my weirdness here, but one reason I really like Walker Percy is that he's surprisingly good at writing about what it means to be lost in contemporary America. What's being lost look like in our day and age? This is how he puts the problem in his book, Lost in the Cosmos. Why is it possible to learn more in 10 minutes about the Crab Nebula, which is 6,000 light years away, than you presently know about yourself, even though you've been stuck with yourself all your life? Or how is it possible for the man who designed the Voyager 19, which arrived at Titania, a satellite of Uranus, three seconds off schedule and 100 yards off course after a flight of six years, to be one of the most screwed up creatures in California or the cosmos? <laughs> He's pointing out, Percy's pointing out how this, it's just this, this contradiction how the same humankind can scientifically explore the outer reaches of space, construct construct a cellular network that allows us to stream entertainment with a flick of our finger pad, and at the exact same time, this human race, you and I, also mightily struggle to know ourselves and make good choices. And so, We talked about this last week with Mark mentioned last week that there's this huge spike in mental health and crime statistics, and they just underlined that Walker Percy's point is all the more decades later um, the case. And really in chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is speaking into the same condition roughly 2,000 years ago. And look, let's be honest, they had zero cell phones, no AI, they had no rockets, let alone rockets that went into deep space, but the self-ignorance was still there. And in this place, and in the way that Jesus speaks, but also multiple places that Jesus speaks, he does affirm the dignity of people being made in his image. And yet at the same time, he's naming something. He's naming this human combination of self-deception and poor choices. And he names this combination being lost. It's being lost. And he's telling two stories about how easy it is to get lost to the most religious people he can find. 
he has identified the Pharisees and the scribes. By the way, Pharisees are like pastors like me, and scribes are their graduate school seminary professors. That's who he's talking to in this parable, just to give you some sense of the context. And this means that lostness is not just a problem out there in the world. Lostness is a problem in me. It's a problem in this room. It's a problem in the church. And so being lost can refer to people who don't follow Jesus, but it also, in the imagery of this parable even, can refer to people who follow Jesus but lose their way for a while. But the good news of these parables is that whether 2,000 years ago or today, there is good news that it's our repentance and God's seeking and finding. These two things, God's repentance and, our, and God's seeking and finding and our repentance, these are for everyone. Whether you would call yourself a Christian or whether you would say thank you very much but no thank you very much. I don't identify that way. This understanding of the scriptures and the Christian life is at the heart of the Bible. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, we're told that Jesus died for the ungodly. But then look at, at the first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, the famous uh, document he nailed to the church door that changed the world, at least the Western world. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You see, repentance is not a one-time thing, right? It's not something you did long ago, and, or maybe it's something you just need to get around to doing once at all. Repentance is a way of life. It's something that we do daily or hourly, and we need to stop in our tracks and turn around, and we need for God to seek and to find us there where we've stopped, where we're trying to turn around. And we need all of these things as often as we fail to follow Jesus. And so salvation is not just a one-time moment. It's, an all, it's an also an always ongoing process. So salvation is not just a one-time moment, it's an ongoing process as well. And look, you're going, whew, we're deep in it already, I'm getting ahead of myself, theological terms, Christian-y language, and I just want to sort of take a step back and give you the big picture takeaway. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, Jesus tells two stories, and these stories celebrate two things. He's celebrating human honesty and how diligently God seeks and how much he rejoices over us. Celebrating human honesty and how much God diligently seeks and, and rejoices over us. And so both of Jesus' parables here describe that word, that often used and underdefined word, repentance. And really, it's a really beautiful way of describing it. He doesn't give us a dictionary definition. He paints a picture for us. What does repentance look like? And more importantly, what does repentance worth celebrating look like? Three things. First, verses one through three, repentance looks like looking up and feeling lost. Second, verses four through five and verse eight, repentance looks like being diligently sought out. And third and finally, verses six through seven, and then nine through 10, repentance looks like being wildly rejoiced over. You can find those points behind me or in your bulletin, and we're gonna begin with that first point in verses one through three. Repentance looks like looking up and recognizing that we're lost. 
as I said earlier, Jesus is telling these two stories to a particular audience. And that particular audience is the most religious and pious people he can find in first century Israel. The pastor Pharisees and the professor scribes. Verses one and two tell us that these people were really upset with Jesus, that he was with tax collectors and sinners, that they were coming up to Jesus and he wasn't choosing to despise them, that he wasn't ignoring them, and they were mad. They were mad that Jesus was welcoming these people into his life, that he received them and he ate meals with them. And look, if you've been around the Bible for a while, that is old news maybe for you. Maybe you're not surprised and maybe you're just sort of going, ho-hum, Jesus with the people that are hard to be with. But my job is to absolutely outrage you about that. And so I'm gonna try to do that a little bit here. Let's look back at this scene by describing the guests, who they are, and really most importantly, what Jesus is doing to those guests. So here we go, sinners. Sinners is this word here that does not just mean someone who has put their trust in something or someone other than God. That's a great definition of sin, and that's what all of us in this room fall into, but he's actually using a social term here. Sinners in the first century in the Jewish world meant something in particular. It referred to people who um, thought to clearly, consciously, and consistently oppose God's will. By clearly, consciously, and consistently refusing to obey the laws in the Old Testament or the oral uh, spoken laws of the Pharisees and the scribes. And so the point is they're social outcasts. The pious people can't touch them, and the pious people won't be touched by them or even be near them. And joining these literally untouchable people are the tax collectors. The tax collectors are Jewish people who collected taxes for the Roman occupying power. These forces, they forced the Jewish people to pay taxes. Money would go for their own subjugation. Like, it's, maybe we just gloss over this word, so let me kind of slow down. These are Jews who collected money to keep Roman soldiers over them. They were Jews who collected money so the Roman swords could be sharpened to be used on them. So what does this, what does Jesus do with these extortioners and these untouchable people? He welcomes them, and it's so important. He doesn't give a Christian side hug to them. He doesn't go three pats in the back, we're just friends. Nope, Jesus invites them all the way up and in to his life. He eats with them. He doesn't just feed them as lesser, he eats with them as equals. Jesus doesn't worry about getting religiously unclean. He doesn't worry about eating unclean foods because Jesus can't get unclean. (laughs) He has only ever made everyone he's ever been with clean. And so when he shares a meal with these people, Jesus is taking the least desirable people into the most desirable place on earth, his intimate presence. So how to put the shock of this, because you're still probably not that shocked. It's like this. Jesus is taking houseless people, people who are camping, living, sleeping in the streets under the overpasses, and Jesus, by having a meal with them, is basically swapping underpants with them. That's what he's doing. That's the discomfort of the scene. And so that's some of the scandal. But what does it have to do with us, Sid? So what? Well, Jesus is this kind of welcoming. He's this kind of intimate with us. 
But I fear some of us don't want to imagine ourselves in this scene because it like, feels like a false choice. It feels like a choice between two sides that we really don't want to be a part of, right? These are two losing sides, two sets of losers. On the one side, we've got the sinners and the tax collectors who are losing in life. And on the other side, we've got the scribes and the Pharisees who are losing with God. And we're like, why would I identify with either of those? But that's exactly what God's up to, Jesus is up to in the story. And Robert Capon reminds us that Jesus is all about this. He's all about twisting and prodding at our success. He says it this way, Jesus is all about rubbing the salt of lostness on the sensibility of those who are preoccupied with the sweetness of their own successes. I love that. Rubbing the salt of lostness on the sensibilities of those preoccupied with the sweetness of their own success. Do you, what, he's up to something here that's very disruptive. So I, I can feel this, right? Whether, for, whether it's kind of spiritually or socially or professionally, I tend to live my life like that dad, uh, like, like I do when I'm renting a car on a family vacation. I mean, I don't know about you, but my number one source of fighting is when I'm driving and my wife is giving directions. Because, and it's usually 99% of the time my fault. Why? Because I refuse to acknowledge that I'm going in the wrong direction and don't know what I'm doing, right? I don't know if anyone else falls in this category, but I refuse to admit that I'm lost. I can claim for miles and miles and miles, leave me alone, I've got this, I can handle this, I know what I'm doing as I miss turn after turn after turn. I can look at Jesus spiritually and think, he's not really needed on the scene in my life. I can look around at others I think they sure need me. That's to say I can look down in pride instead of up in humility. Like the Pharisees and like the scribes, you and I can get lost in the sweetness of our own successes. So deadly. And this is exactly why we need to hear these two stories that Jesus tells us in verses 4 through 10 because Jesus is reminding us he not only welcomes, but he also pursues the lost. Look with me at the way that Jesus diligently seeks us out, and this is point two in your outline. In verses four through five, and then six through, or, and then verse eight, Jesus is emphasizing the diligence. He's bolding it, he's underlining it, he's italicizing, he's all caps locking the incredible measures that God goes to, all in order to seek and to find lost people. Let's look at the full-out, all-out measures together in verse 8. Here in this verse, God is describing a woman who loses a coin. Likely, it fell somehow and it rolled into a narrow but deep crack between stone slabs of her floor. That's the picture that we have here. Whatever the case, she lights the lamp and gets down on all fours, and, and she's just trying to get to see the glint of it with that lamp. And she grabs the broom and she's furiously beating the entire length and breadth of her flooring. Why? Just to hear the clink of that coin. And to get spiritual about this scene, Jesus came down as the light of the world. And he's sweeping his gospel message, the entire length and breadth of creation, of the world, to every tribe and every tongue and every nation on this planet until, until he finds you. How does God's diligence in verse eight compare to your diligence and my diligence, my perseverance in seeking? 
here's how my seeking works in my home, right? I'm a little bit hungry, somewhere between a meal, and I go to my pantry closet, and I think I'm gonna find something to snack on. And in that particular case, I'll just say microwavable popcorn. I'm looking for microwavable popcorn. And I bend down, not very far, because I'm inflexible. <laughs> and there I am, sort of scouring the closet, cabinet, and um, I give it a good solid two minutes tops, usually less than that. And then I kind of jerk back up, and I kind of am angry, and I'm like, I can't find the popcorn tier, my wife. I can't find it. I'm complaining, and she kind of says, you know, she's doing 18 different things in the background, stops what she's doing, comes back over to my one little request to the snack cabinet, and looks down and finds it in 30 seconds or less, right? I don't know if anyone else lives this reality. Aside from that, like, look, why can't I find it? What's my problem? Aside from not having God-like searching powers, I don't have God's desire. I am not filled to the brim, impossible to exhaust, to find what I'm looking for. And that's what God is. God lets no obstacle. He lets no time and space. He lets nothing cease and desist him from looking and searching and finding. Look at verse 4 with me. As a shepherd, God leaves behind the 99% and goes after the 1%, as far and as long as it takes. Even if the distance is from heaven to earth, even if it takes 33, 365 Jesus of Nazareth days, God, the good shepherd, will go after the one that's lost until he finds him, until he finds her. But please, please don't mistake this as just good shepherding practice, especially nowadays. That's just not the case. So several years ago, my parents went on a, like a trip of a lifetime, and because I was an adult child, I wasn't invited. Does anyone else have this problem? Um, so they went to New Zealand without me, uh, which I'm still bitter about if you can't hear. Um, and I played the good son, though, because I'm good at performing. And so I just said, hey, uh, how was the trip, mom and dad? Uh, tell me about it, and tried not to get jealous. And as they were talking, uh, they told me a story about sitting down with a really successful shepherd, uh, a man who owned a business to produce wool, which is a big industry, especially in the southern part of New Zealand. And he told, uh, they kind of got into the secret of, of this guy's success. And so he told my parents if a sheep strayed from the flock, he didn't go after it, he just let it go, right? He didn't chase after it, didn't really bother with a single sheep, didn't make much sense. And if the sheep came back, do you know what he did? He didn't throw a party, he killed it. Do you know why? Because he didn't want that kind of rebellion and stupidity to be bred into his flock. At the end of the day, he credited this policy with his success. What makes his operation productive and efficient? Uh, what gives him a good P&L bottom line? That's what he credited. In other words, not chasing after the sheep, killing the sheep, the ones that found their way back, that just made good business sense for him. Just makes, just good math. This means that Jesus is telling us that his shepherding plan, the gospel, is wonderfully inefficient. <laughs> he doesn't give a rip about his productivity rate. He doesn't give a rip about his bottom line. 
He's not crunching the numbers in heaven and wondering if you or I are worth the effort. He's not saying, I don't know if Sid's earned the price of the precious blood of Christ. Uh, I don't know. He's not going, he, and he's also just not going to let us run and hide in the American dream when Christianity gets tough. He's not that kind of shepherd. He's pursuing us with everything he's got. No matter how poorly we pray, no matter how poorly we read the Bible, no matter how little we, get, we help out people in our lives, today even, he's not calculating your spiritual output. And he's certainly not calculating your spiritual output with a shrug or a frown. But notice verse five. Jesus doesn't just find us. He doesn't leave us there. When a sheep realizes its lostness, do you know what it does when it realizes it's separated from the flock? Do you, know what, do you know what a sheep actually does? So I've been told. The sheep simply lies down and refuses to move. I don't know if you knew this. And so that requires, I mean, you could call the sheep all day and it doesn't come to you. Okay, when it's, when it's lost and it's scared, it just sits there. And so the shepherd has to do what God must do in verse five. God moves first. He has to meet us where we are. And so notice that Jesus bends down and he picks us up and he carries us where we need to be, back to the flock. God doesn't just find us. He doesn't just pat us on the head. He doesn't just say, don't you ever change a thing. The world will change its heart. And he doesn't do that and he doesn't just like turn and leave and just kind of go on his own way and leave us in the faraway country. No, God, full of love, heaves us onto his shoulders, bears the burden of the distance, and he bears the burden of the time, and he bears the weight it will take to restore us to what we truly need, to the peace and to the purpose of his presence and Christian community. And this, according to Anne Lamott, the writer, is how God's mysterious love always works. Lamott puts it this way, I don't at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. But please don't miss point three of the sermon. <laughs> please don't miss, the, the, let's not miss, the feeling that, Je that Jesus has when he's doing this work, when he is the burden carrying, when he's seeking after, when he's finding, when he's returning and shouldering the burden. Verse five tells us what? Jesus, when he has found us, he lays us on his shoulders, rejoicing, rejoicing. A joy which Robert Capon says is the root and the blossom of the shepherd's will to find. That joy is the motivating factor is what he's saying there. This joy spills over into the full stop. Invite the neighbors and the friends over for a partay. That's exactly what's going on in this passage. For the shepherd and the woman, the joy of finding the lost sheep and the lost coin is instant. And it's got to be shared. And when they find what they're looking for, they call together their friends and their neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I found it. I found what was lost. Verses 6 and 9. And so we can imagine the scene, can't we? Bunches of balloons, bowls of snackable carbs, the sheet cake, loud floor-thumping disco, electronic music maybe, 
maybe even some 21-year and older booze and solo cups all over the place. And the people are just streaming in, right? There are armfuls of gifts. There are screams of delight at the door of recognition. And in the mood, everyone's in the mood for a full out, move the tables and the chairs out of the way, make way for a living room party. But then verse seven and eight go one step further and they say this wild, noisy kind of party is going on in heaven every single time a sinner repents. Every single time a person acknowledges being lost and hitches a ride with Jesus back to Christian community, back to Jesus' care. Every time someone comes to his or her senses, looks around and cries out for help to God, every single time, God comes sprinting out into the open country. Or with a broom and oil, an oil lamp, God flattens himself out on his belly and he scours the crevices of creation until, until, go, right? God the Father, when he knows God the Spirit has found us for the first time or the 99th time, when God the Father sees that good news, what does he do? He breaks into a run. And he slides on his knees, pumping his fists in the air, yelling at the top of his lungs until his voice collapses and the angel player pile on that happens on top of him. That's how I imagine it, at least, right? But that's sort of, that's what's going on in heaven. That's the picture of the divine reality. I, I, I want to end with talking about what goes on in the human experience of this. How does it feel to once again be lost and to once again be found in plain sight? David Ireland uh, longed his whole life to have children, and just when he found out that his wife was pregnant, he discovered that he had Lou Gehrig's disease. It started with the dragging left foot, and the uses of his hands slowed, and then his whole body began just to shut down. And he began to think, I'm gonna die before this baby's born. And so he started writing a book, and the book's called Letters to an Unborn Child. And in one letter, David attempts to describe his wife to his future son. And this is his description, it goes like this. My child, I want you to know what your mother is like. She's absolutely incredible. I think I can make it clear to you by just telling you what happens when we go out to eat at night. When we go out to a restaurant, this is what she has to do. Because I'm a quadriplegic now and in a wheelchair, she has to bathe me, dress me, empty the urine and fecal bags that are strapped to my legs, then put me in the wheelchair, drive me out to the garage, open the garage, open the door, get out of board, pull the arm on my chair, slide me across the board, put me in the car, put the arm, put down the arm, fold up the chair, open the trunk, put in the chair, close the trunk, close the door, get in the car, back it out, close the garage door, and drive to the restaurant. When we get there, the whole process is reversed, stop the car, get out, open the trunk, get out the chair, unfold it, bring it to the door, open the door, put it on the board, slide me across, put down the arm, close the door, push me in, shut the trunk. When we sit down at a table, she feeds me, she wipes the drool from my mouth because I can barely eat, 
gets up, pays the check, and then the whole process is reversed. Get out of the car, get out to the car, open the door, take off the arm, put the down the board, slide me across, put down the arm, fold up the chair, go to the back, open the trunk, put up the chair, close the trunk, get in the car, and drive. Get to the garage, up goes the garage door, everything else is reversed. Take me in, clean me, empty the fecal and urine bags, bathe me, put me in my pajamas, and lay me in bed. And then David Ireland writes this, son, these are your, la- your mother's last words to me. Thank you, honey, for taking me out to eat tonight. And David finishes his letter by saying, I never really know how quite to answer that. Every single time that we wander off and we cry out to God, every single time, he comes running. He comes running to find us with all the millions of synapses he has to fire, with all the dozens of hands and feet that he has to move, all the stoplights he needs to time, all the Google and Outlook calendars he needs to sync up together. And when God finds us, do you know what he says to us? Thank you, honey, for repenting. Thank you, honey, for repenting. And if I'm honest, I never know quite how to answer that. How could I begin to answer God's joy over me in that moment? How can I do anything but let it carry me on his shoulders, rejoicing? Would you pray with me? Father, help us to to sit in that. Um, Help us to know your love that deeply. that you're pursuing us like that. And it's not a chore, it's a delight. Help our unbelief. Would you move us by your joy to delight in you? In your name, Jesus, amen.